Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is May 21st, 2014. This is episode 1351 of the Survival Podcast. And we're going to talk about hand-to-hand combat today with Bill Wolf and Adam Perrins. And we're specifically going to focus on... World War II style combatives. It's going to be a very interesting interview. I think a lot of you might have your eyes open quite a bit as to some of the things that are lacking in a lot of so-called self-defense training, which I really consider more uh, sporting training. Not that there's anything wrong with them uh, for what they are, but they also do have their limitations when faced with real-world violence. That's the type of discussion we're going to have today. Before I do that, let's go ahead and... Uh, Take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today is uh, JM Bullion. You know, I absolutely felt that it was imperative that I have a silver and gold sponsor for you guys. I really did. And uh, many years ago, I was approached by someone who was a small business person in the silver and gold industry, and I really liked that person, and I really liked what they did up until a point where something happened, and I decided I, I could no longer have that person be officially associated with my show. And then I said, well, now I don't have one. So I went out to find one, and I found Jam Bullion. I wanted a company where I could talk to the owner myself personally, and I found one. I wanted one that was competitive price-wise, someone that was on par or better than Monix and Atmex. I found both of those things at Jam Bullion. If I was going to buy an ounce to 100 ounces of silver tomorrow morning, I would go straight to Jam Bullion and order with confidence there. I recommend you consider doing the same thing for your silver and gold needs. Check them out, Jam Bullion. Dot com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? Berkey Water Filtration Systems, of course. You can check out Jeff's website at directive21.com. And not only does he have great Berkey stuff for you, he's got great other stuff for your prepping needs, like the Survival Cave line of long-term storage foods and other really cool things. But if you need a Berkey, then you do. If you don't have one already, go to Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. Don't be the guy that gets your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have went to the one and only, the true Berkey guy, Jeff Gleason, a maniac at customer service and one of the leading distributors for Berkey in the world. You know you're going to get good service and good pricing every time you give Jeff the chance to win your business. He's going to do a great job with it. Check it out. Again, directive21.com is the website, and it's the numbers 2 and 1, so directive21.com. Uh, our... Uh, MSB supporting vendor of the day today is going to be MERS Radio, M-U-R-S-Radio.com. Check out MERS Radio. Uh, Rob over there was a sponsor of the show one time, and as we grew, I, I really did everything I could to keep my rates I- extremely reasonable. I actually consider my advertising rates now to be probably half of what they should be uh, for the audience size. I mean, I mean I, not to toot my own horn here or anything, but... I haven't raised rates in two years. Two years ago, I, I did a, a rate increase for my sponsors, and I haven't increased it since then. We've doubled the size of the audience without increasing the rates of advertising. That's because I really want to retain my advertisers that have been with me since the beginning. That's why part of why they've been here so long. But even with that, I mean, a small business that only sells one real line of product like Merz Radio 
you know, at some points, that's a little too steep for me. So he backed off as an advertiser, but he's continued to support the show as an MSB discounter. And uh, the MERS radios are awesome. And if you need any help figuring out what you need, give Rob a call. You can find his information on his website, and he will help you out. Uh, it's a way to combine commu uh, communications and security into one package, and it's very affordable to do so. Again, it's Mears Radio, M-U-R-S-Radio.com. Uh, with that, let's uh, remind you guys to consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you haven't done so already, uh, especially if you're interested in the Perma Ethos PDC that looks like it will launch on Friday unless some kind of major problem comes up to prevent us from doing it on Friday. It will go to MSB first, and probably you MSB guys will have a whole weekend before we open it to the general public. Anyway, uh, with that, I do want to remind you, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, you, you guys get a discount from me, whether you're active duty or prior service, doesn't matter. Email me before, not after you join the member support brigade. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you the discount code. Again, do it before, not after you join. Everybody else, uh, you got to pay full price, but it's still a great deal. Uh, the discounts will cover the cost of the membership and then some. I hear from people all the time that say they make two to three times their money per year, and you get to support the show while doing that. So consider joining if you haven't already. Go to thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, thesurvivalpodcast.com. Click on Members, and you'll find all the information you need there to sign up. Remember, not only do I take PayPal for online subscriptions, I also take Bitcoin, I take silver, I take cash, and if you have something you want to barter, let me know. I'm not saying I'll say yes, but sometimes I'll even take barter for an MSB membership. With that wrapped up, let's get into the main topic of today's show. Yesterday I had internet outages and it led me to a problem. So yesterday I did the year 1351 in the year 1350s episode. So today, 1351 is the episode We will look at the year 1350. You might want to remember this. This could be a trivia question in the future. Which episode featured, you know, the, the year after its, you know, thing in the whatever? I'm just saying. Um, there's, again, the 1350s are just dominated by the Black Plague. Um, there's three really interesting ones today. I'm going to take the one I feel like talking about because I think it makes a point for how you can get sucked into certain men mental states, which is going to be a lot of what we're going to talk about today. So that's why I'm picking this one. Black Death. King Edward III buys a plot. Remember, King Edward is the uh, the father of Prince Edward, uh, the Black Prince. Uh, those who planned ahead bought burial plots for themselves and their families. This was both practical and a plea to God for clemency. In a sense, it was a contribution to the church and thus a hope that it might gain some favor with God. King Edward of England buys an entire cemetery and makes a donation to establish a monastery. He pledges one million pounds sterling annually, about four million dollars. The royal family will manage to survive the Black Death more or less intact, so the cemetery won't be needed for any burials of the royals. Perhaps Princess Joan was looking out for them from heaven, After Princess Joan died in the plague of 1348, the king had speculation might intercede on their behalf. Here's Alex Shrugg's take, who puts these together. The plague has totally changed the perspective of people. Optimism has taken a serious nosedive. Historians don't have many writings from peasants. Only 5% of peasants were literate at most. Most of the writings come from the gentry, the higher-level clergy, and the nobles. Their focus has moved from indulgences and extravagances to austerity and somberness. One can hardly blame them. Also, drinking has increased. No big surprise there either. 
I, I think that there's something to be said there because, yeah, we don't have the Black Death to deal with today. But you have people who were, you know, basically living off the, the fat of other human beings' land. Okay, the nobles. Um, the people that were the wealthiest people in the world at the time had everything, you know, to look forward to. And their whole demeanor turns to this glum, somber, uh, austerity-minded life, including for themselves. Uh, the king giving a million pounds sterling or four million dollars a year to one monastery to establish a monastery. Now, of course, it's not the king's money, it's the people's money, but, uh, you know, he could have done something else with it. So, it, in a way, it was money he had control of. Uh, the nobles and the gentry going from indulgences and extravagances to somberness. And it, it just shows that the human mental state can hit a point where it feels, well, man, there's not much to look forward to anymore. And at that point, progress stops. Advancement stops. Innovation stops. And it's important in our daily lives that we don't find ourselves individually in those mental states. There's things that happen to people every day that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, aren't that bad, that lead them to this mentality. And there's things that are really, really are that bad in the grand scheme of things, at least for that individual and or their family, that lead them to this mental state. And we are never productive in this mental state, and we're never in a survival mindset in this mental state. And the people in this mental state that got through the plague, to me, got through it in spite of the fact that they were in this mental state, not because of it. And that's just something to think about in your daily lives. Or when your life is threatened through violence, having that survival instinct and that survival mindset. Uh, right now I want to introduce Adam Perrins and uh, Bill Wolf of Wolves Combatives uh, out of Vancouver, British Columbia. Uh, these guys are switched on. They know what they're talking about. Bill in particular has been through the ringer, so to speak, both in combat and on the streets as a law enforcement officer and a military uh, sergeant major. He was actually a regimental sergeant major uh, for the uh, Canadian uh, Special Forces. And uh, he's a really great guy, and so is Adam. They're also both listeners to the show. And I'd like to welcome Adam and Bill to the Survival Podcast. Thanks for joining us today, guys. Great. Thanks. Thanks for having us on the show. Thanks, Jack. Um, let's start. i got two people, so I'm going to have to ask each of you to do this individually. You decide who goes first. But could both of you just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into teaching Army combatives? Sure. Um, I'll start. I... Um in university and uh, in high school, I was always... And just active. for the audience, this is Adam. Now, now you guys can get their voices apart, but this is Adam. Adam, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sure. Um, I've always been interested in um, combat sports, so wrestling uh, and whatnot. And then uh, when I came out of university, I started training MMA, um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai kickboxing, that sort of thing. And then um, kind of got into... Uh, training with some guys that were in the USC. And then when those guys went off and sort of really sort of went towards their careers, I ran into Bill and uh, started training with him. And it really showed me a difference between sports, uh, com uh, combatants fighting, and, uh, and what sort of application for real life is really like. And that's how I got into this and really developed a huge passion for it. And Bill, you, how did, how did you come to this? 
Well, I've been at this since 1962, Jack. So, okay. Uh, <laughs> I started like a lot of young fellers in judo and jiu-jitsu back then at the YMCA. Uh, my instructor, a guy named Harold Storm, had been a World War II commando in the Royal Marines, and he was an unarmed combat instructor. And anyway, he'd been trained by a guy by the name of Fairburn. Some of your listeners may know who that is. So anyway, he started uh, this uh, life of uh, beating the crap out of people. I spent, you know, the last 50 or so years doing it. Uh, I spent 39 years in the Canadian Army as uh, my last uh, appointment was Regimental Sergeant Major. And my job was teaching combatives of, as you can imagine, all kinds of natures in the commando. So anyway, uh, you know, martial arts, uh, this sort of thing. And my passion now is to try to keep this type of training, the system that was used by our grandfathers and great-grandfathers in some of your viewers' case, off the museum shelf and keep it a living history rather than some uh, forgotten art, if you will. Very cool. Um, can you guys talk about, and again, I'll let you, and if, if you could, just for the audience, if you have two people, as you speak up, say either this is Adam or this is Bill, um, you talk about why military, or, or what are military combatives, especially, you guys do, you know, World War II based combatives, what, what is that all about, and uh, for my edification, is it what the military is doing now that I know is, 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 is Army combatives, or is it different? Well, Jack, it's Bill here, uh, uh, the stuff that uh, is being taught today, uh, especially with uh, your American uh, infantry, or Army in general, is modern Army combatives, which is based off of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is, as you know, is a big, huge sport now in the United States. World War II combatives uh, has the same, it has a lineage, uh, it's called Jiu-Jitsu. The guy who started what we're doing, Fairburn, he created this system over 100 years ago in a little town called Shanghai in China with a special uh, Shanghai Municipal Police Force. Uh, Fairburn, although not well known anymore, was the pioneer of all modern close combat training. He's the guy that uh, J. Edgar Hoover brought in to train the FBI when they first formed the FBI. Um, he is uh, a legend to anybody who knows anything about him. He's the guy who created the unarmed combat training systems for World War II, which went with the commandos, rangers, uh, Marine uh, Raider Battalions, uh, SOE, OSS, uh, all those secret agent groups. Uh, he created the SWAT team in 1920. Uh, all, almost all police marksmanship training today is contributed back to him. So for a guy that did all that, not well known. What we're teaching today is his system. Of course, I've blended in uh, my 40 years of operational experience as a soldier and as a police officer to modernize it, if you will, because as you realize, I'm sure, if you keep a system that's just a museum piece, it's uh, not going to be applicable in the modern world. Um, for example, I've taught uh, history lessons, if you will, to uh, your special forces community in the United States, and they find this system uh, the most intimidating training they've ever gotten. And the main reason they find it so is because it's not sports-based. Uh, we actually start at the killing aspect and work our way down to uh, a lower level of force options that are required for rules of engagement today, unlike the sports training uh, that's being done. Uh, you know, the World War II combatives, if you will, is the most combat-tested system in the world, and it's the most proven system in the world. Um, so, you know, it, it's hugely different from what uh, is being taught today in just that aspect alone. Uh, so it's a true 
if you know, Western military-based system that's got some guts behind it. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Can you talk about maybe how it's different from other military systems like Sistema and Krav Maga? Um, you know, I get how it's different from just from what you said there. You're starting at the aspect of how to kill somebody versus uh, lower uh, levels of force. Uh, but you've got military systems again, like 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 Krav and, and Sistema. How, how do you differ from those? Well, first off, uh, we're easier to pronounce. You okay. Have a hard time saying. Um, Krav Maga, for example, what you see today, I mean, I've, I've uh, obviously uh, worked with Israeli uh, military and police units over the years. The training they're getting today, it, what you call Krav Maga, is, is not the system that, uh, of training that I learned and practiced with those guys. Uh, as you know, Krav is just a Hebrew word which means self-defense. Emmy, the guy who who's credited as being the founder of Krav Maga, actually was trained by SOE Palestine, uh, Special Operations Executive, which was the World War II uh, terrorist, uh, or I'm sorry, terrorist uh, uh, spy operations. Um, the Palestine training group uh, in uh, which was just outside of Tel Aviv back in the day was designed. They took the uh, Hebrew. The Jewish uh, people of Palestine at the time who had German and or European backgrounds and they formed the Palmach and Ugun brigades which were uh, infiltrated in behind the Germans to uh, basically gather intelligence and Emmy was one of the instructors so Emmy qualified basically under the Fairburn system of close combat training so uh, the original Israeli defense force training is very closely akin to what we do um, in that it had to work for real war. So, you know, any system that's being taught that has that lineage is very similar. Uh, as far as Sistema goes, um, there's not a lot in common with it at all. Sistema seems to me to be a lot more, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for without insulting anybody, um, uh, uh, fantasy-orientated. There's a lot of stuff there. Well, we won't go there because you're you're desperately misinformed, I would say. Too many YouTube videos, but it is a far more controlled style, and it is far more for the use by, let's say, security personnel than for combat. Yeah, as Adam just interjecting, like <laughs> at the at the end of the day, most of what people see of Sistema comes from YouTube videos and whatnot these days. I can't say that I have uh, a wealth of experience with it. So it's it's hard to really comment on it without having trained in the system for a long period of time. I, I would agree with that. I think that, and, and the problem is that every other person that learns how to strike in Sistema thinks they're a teacher, um, and they're not. And it's it is a totally different mindset, and it is it's something you you know if if you would look at a, a U.S. counterpart, it would be far more in line with the training that let's say a CIA or operative would receive. Than with the training uh, a U.S. infantryman would receive, it's 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 not designed for the same thing. Anyway, yeah. we won't we won't go deep into that, but but I get I get what you're saying there. Well, and, and if I could add one uh, one other thing to that is that for a lot of uh, systems like Krav Maga and Sistema, I'm sure as well, um, they do take a long time. Like I, they take a long time to really master. And I'd say with just about any martial art. If you have the dedication and you want to put in the time and effort to really master the martial art, you're going to become really good at it and uh, very capable of defending yourself. 
most people, I would say, don't have that um, dedication or the time uh, to put into it these days with our lives being as busy as they are. Um, World War II combatants was specifically designed to get soldiers up to a very high level of proficiency in a very short period of training time that they had. And that's the same model that we carry forward in training today is keeping things as basic as possible, mastering those basics and not having to spend years and years to get uh, really competent uh, in defending yourself. Cool. Well, what do, what do you believe it is that makes you able to really, you know, reach a level of proficiency so quickly? Um, I really feel it's, it's the simplicity of things because uh, when when Pat O'Neill and Fairburn were were devising this system, uh, they really needed to take out any kind of fluff or anything that didn't apply specifically to killing the enemy. And in doing so, they they took the most basic things, the easy to learn things, and focused on uh, really um, narrowing the, the field of focus down to the things that are only going to work. And um, you know, I, I have experience in say in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and I think of something like a uh, an anaconda choke in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It's a really cool choke where you can choke someone from a really odd position. But from a self-defense standpoint, there's, there's no purpose in ever learning that because it's not really street applicable. So if someone just wants to learn to defend themselves, um, having a system that's only focusing on things that are going to work in a, in a street sense or military sense um, is going to make it so much easier to learn. Yeah, and can we talk a little bit about, because here's my philosophy with, with, with grappling in general. You better know how to do it, because if you end up in the situation and you don't, especially if your opponent does, you're in deep, deep shit, just to be blunt. But my view has always been, in real-world combative situations, it is the last place you want to be because there's these things called other people. Absolutely. And no matter how good you are on the ground, it takes one guy to step on your head and kill you. Exactly. Um, there's there's no doubt about that. In in uh, going to the go, learning to grapples is great. Um, there's grappling in World War II combatants, but it's really focused on more not on going for an arm bar or some sort of choke on the ground. It's more about extricating yourself from the ground, getting back up, and taking your opponent to the ground. Because at the end of the day, being down is where you don't want to be. Okay. Yeah, as you kind of hit on it, Jack, as you know, the, the crowd is never neutral in a street fight. You know, I, I spent about 15 years as a uh, police officer in, in patrol division. And, uh, you know, you're always picking up the pieces of the guy that ended up on the ground. So it's a good Everybody has to know something about ground fighting, if, not, if nothing else, to execute back to your feet so you can get the hell out of Dodge. So, uh, and as you know, ground fighting in itself can be quite complicated and it's a quite the learning curve. So, uh, you know, I've got a scar on the end of my nose from holding a guy on my guard, which is a, in the ground fighters listening, they will tell you, and, and having my arms held by his friends, and he's, he bites the tip of my nose off. Kinda, that doesn't quite happen in the UFC. So uh, <laughs> I've got a couple knife wounds in my body that are from the same basic position, being on the ground. You know, if you don't watch the hands, uh, you get stabbed. And when you get into a sports-based system, you're not 
training to deal with that up-leveling that the guy's going for. If he's losing or he's panicking, he's drawing that extra weapon. And if you're thinking spare fighting, i.e. sports rules, you, you don't care about the knife because, quite frankly, you don't worry about it. You know, you can't get punched in the nuts in a sports fight. Well, young Brazilian lads will come in here, and, of course, they're 40 years younger than me. They'll wrap their legs around me and say, well, how do you get out of this, Mr. Wolf? And I said, well, here, how do you get out? And I'll punch him in the balls. And <laughs> frankly, that uh, kind of, you know, smartens them up a little bit. But, you know, it's hard to get past the training. There's a thing called tacky psyche. It says how you train is how you react. And if your training is inadequate, uh, you're going to get hurt. You know, you don't want the ambulance guy showing up having the wrong first aid. So same same goes for your self-defense. Sure. And there is something to the simplicity, I, I think, and that might be where the, the Sistema techniques kind of actually blend. Um, we had one training we were doing with the uh, Charlotte SWAT team, and they had had two officers slashed with knives um, by um, uh, uh, perpetrators who they would put to the ground, and the guy would go to the ground, and they have guns on him. They tell the guy to put his, put his hands out, and the guy would refuse to put his hands out. And they, you know, eventually they'd have to go and try to, you know, get the guy, control the guy's hands, and when they would do that, he'd slash. And, of course, they don't know if he's armed or not yet because they haven't been able to search him yet, so they had two guys cut, you know, in these altercations, and in one case, the the perpetrator had actually been shot and killed, so they had actually killed the guy that they would have preferred not to kill as well. And uh, so they asked Val, uh, my teacher, how how would you handle with this? And so the guy says, well, do with it. So the guy lays on the ground, puts his arms underneath his chest, and he says, put your hands out. And the guy says, no. He walks behind him and just steps on his balls. And, you know, the hands come out. It's it's amazing what happens in that situation. And I, I, I tell that story mainly not to bring it back to Sistema, but because of the lack of reality in the sports-based systems have always been my biggest problem because I don't know about you, but if I feel I'm in a, a life-threatening situation and I'm being attacked – Whatever is vulnerable on my opponent will be the subject of an attack. I'm not going to go, oh, that's not cool, or that's not sporting, or that's not fair uh, in that type of scenario. And I don't think most other people will either. And I do feel that in some of these systems that people become overconfident and they don't train for the situation that actually could be life-threatening. Absolutely. And, and just like what Bill had said, you know, how you train is how you react. And if you're training in a sports system consistently, you're, you're building in um, habits that will, will leave you vulnerable. Um, good example is, is shots to your throat, shots to your, uh, to your groin. There are areas that you don't necessarily think to protect right off the bat. Or they're not areas that you think to attack right off the bat because if you're doing a lot of boxing training, you might be thinking, I can only punch him in the head or I can punch him in the, in the torso. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when, when you get into that mind state, it's very hard to break it. Um, I've experienced that myself and just when I first started training uh, in combatives as opposed to sport fighting, it was really hard for me to wrap my head around instead of throwing a jab uh, to his jaw, uh, throwing a finger to the eye or uh, even getting comfortable with putting my finger in somebody else's eye. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, you know, you know, the biggest problem we have, Jack, is when we teach this stuff is everybody thinks that the guy you're going to meet on the street is a trained MMA fighter or whatever. Sure. And we know statistically that's just not the case. All the yahoos I've arrested over my career were basically a bunch of thugs. Uh, uh, they may have had some training, but nothing to write home about. So 
you know, you, your level of training has got to meet the threat. And, then, you know, of course, uh, you're training yourself. So, you know, the average person will give you two hours a, a week to train them in something. So how much can you really impart uh, to the more gung-ho and dedicated? Of course, they live and breathe this stuff. So they're the ones that are going to get the full benefit of the training. But the average joker on the street uh, has little to no training. He just has a propensity to want to hurt you. And that in itself can be scary for a lot of people, even trained martial artists and guys in our system too, unless we train them up mentally to give themselves permission to use this stuff, they get caught at a huge disadvantage because, as you know, good people don't go causing problems, but they're always playing catch up to the threat level that the uh, individual puts them into. So that th themselves psychologically can switch them off. So training has to address you know that mind-body so that they can actually ramp up and catch up and surpass the guy that's about to put them into harm. Can we talk about then how we balance one thing that you said at the very beginning of this that, that, that kind of took me by surprise, that you start off with how to kill somebody, basically, the lethal technique. Now, the other thing that was said during this interview, and I completely agree with, is what you train to do is what you end up doing. So let's take this to a different type of force-on-force -force engagement. You're threatening me to the point I feel my life's at stake. I pull my gun and shoot you and kill you. If I go say to the responding law enforcement, I intended to kill him, right, that, then that's actually at least manslaughter at that point. The, the proper response is I, I, I felt threatened, so I, I stopped the attack, and he happened to die. So how do we balance the fact that this is designed to train you to kill somebody with appropriate defense based on the situation at hand? Well, you're living where in Texas, Jack? Yeah. I live in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. This is the socialist north, mate. We're not allowed to have guns. Got you. If I pulled out a gun and shot somebody, my uh, ass would literally become grass. So, uh, <laughs> you, yeah, I, we have to uh, be able to deal with it empty-handed. Uh, maybe I'll pull up my knife if the, if the threat's there. But again, it's like anything, even down your neck of the woods. You have to justify your level of force. And the first person you have to justify that level of force to is you. So if you can rationalize that killing, then uh, to yourself, first and foremost, in that split-second decision, are you going to be able to uh, pass that forward on to first the attending officer, and then, of course, to lawyers and the jury, judge and jury. So that's the, that's the nick of it. So in training that we do, we have to also give our people a little course in legal use of force so they can understand that uh, aspect so they don't get their ass in a sling. You know, it's that old saying, sir, is anything I can say or do to get you to leave me alone? If he gives you that famous Canadian middle finger salute, you know, you may have to kick him in the balls before he gets a chance to close that little finger, stuff like that. So, you know, uh, you have to start at a higher level of force and scale down because if you know, we talked about the sports aspect. The sports aspect, you're always dealing in that level of fun force, if you will, if we can call it that. Yeah. If for those lads, it's hard to step up, you know, when the threat gets there because you're you're still stuck in that I'm going to do this technique or that technique, and I should be able to control this guy. Well, uh, you know, after years of police work, you get guys who are out on drugs. I mean, I'd uh, slap guys across the throat with a hickory baton and they kind of look at you, you know, their eyes sputter a little bit. They give you this really bad growl. So you take that baton, you shove it out the window because you don't want to stuck up your butt. And the fight's on, you get in behind them and you eventually choke them out if that's what you do. And again, 
you know, we're not talking uh, civilized behavior. So, again, you're rationalizing, you're up-ramping right off the bat. If he does transition to a weapon, well, you know, as a police officer, I had that option. But up here as a civilian, I don't. So the only thing I've got is basically hands, feet, teeth, and a whole lot of courage to get out of this. And that's what you have to train people to do. First thing and foremost, as you know, if they can't give themselves permission to hurt this guy, they're not going to do any force option, even if it was a firearm. So that's the psychological aspect of training. You know, I've over the years uh, in police career interviewed hundreds of victims. Uh, I've gone home to their homes too many times to tell their parents that Johnny or Mary is not coming home and have to explain why. Um, and, you know, you interview the, vic- the, the uh, perpetrator and they never meant to kill him. And, uh, you know, that's a sad state of affairs. And, of course, Johnny didn't have any skills to get himself out of it. So, you know, our training here, we have to make sure that we answer those questions for him. And it's not as easy as one, two, three, uh, as you know. So, you know, that's part and parcel of it. Does that make sense? It makes sense. I just have to say, I would feel much more comfortably defending my choice to use lethal force with a gun than I would uh, martially. And I guess the reason is that if I feel that I have to pull and, and, and fire my gun, the, the reality is you could die. And I think the psychology of a jury, that if you killed somebody with your hands, you probably didn't have to, it may not be true, but it may be very difficult to overcome. And it, it, it does seem like something that someone really has to think a lot about in their training, that they have a, a certain level of control that, even if that's where you start and you pull down, to make sure you understand to pull down because there are things you can do physically that can end a life very, very quickly. Um, and it, it, it would be an, a, a really tough position to defend yourself in a court of law over. Um, what I will say is, is there's a, a large component of psychological training that goes into this as well. Um, a common thing is we have a, a number of uh, security personnel or bouncers, whatnot, that, that train with us. And uh, a few of these guys, you know, they're maybe not necessarily people that should be in security services and they have a bit of uh, anger issues. And what we really try to do is work with them and being able to um, ramp down. So if my first thought is I have to worry about this bad guy assailant, whether he has a weapon. If he does, I need to meet that level of force uh, with, with one, one step above what he's got. Um, but if he doesn't, and I've, I've ascertained that, I need to be able to maintain uh, a functional control of myself to be able to ramp down and not um, use an excessive level of force. It's not an easy thing to do, but we uh, train people um, in, a, in an extremely, we, I should say, we test people in an extremely fatigued state that simulates a fear response and get people to uh, slowly work that out of their uh, mental psyche. Oh, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense. Would you talk about why you think this may be the ideal method of training for preppers? And either one of you can take that. Um, I'll take it if you want. Um, <laughs> The big thing for me is is time and what the average person can accomplish. Um, we've sort of spoken to um, how this system is very simplified. It's it's really was designed that over the court, if you really immerse yourself um, in a course over uh, two weeks or so that a, a soldier would receive, 
in pre-deployment, uh, you're going to become extremely capable um, with your self-defense skills. So if you're an average person who you know only has two hours a week or can dedicate a weekend or, or four days here or there to, to training, they're able to develop a very high level of competency in a short period of time. Whereas if you go and uh, say want to learn a more traditional martial art or sports-based martial art, um, they're going to uh, take a lot longer to master because there's just a lot more techniques. And you're going to have to also learn all a lot of uh, sports techniques that simply don't apply. Sure, that makes sense. Um, did you talk about if I came to your school, you didn't know me from Adam, I didn't know you from Adam, I'm just a new student. Mm-hmm. And I show up for the first day of training. What what is a, a typical initial training session like? What type of things do you go over? I, I would imagine you probably prefer the student that knows they don't know anything to the per- student that thinks they do. And I think that's true in martial arts, shooting. I don't care what it is. I think you always prefer the student that's that's almost green to the person that thinks they know a different way that's better. Well, but what's what's that training like? Well, uh, I'll start off by saying we. I'll let Bill answer exactly what the training is like, but I won't say that uh, that we prefer someone who's green necessarily. Although it makes them easier to uh, to indoctrinate into into the combative system of fighting. Um, what I love is when people have trained in other martial arts and they they have the sort of same experience I did, where you you have this this skill set that you've been working on for a number of years and you feel really confident in that system. And then you come in and you you train in something that's so much more uh, realistically um, applicable and your eyes sort of open you and you realize that uh, what I've been learning in the past has been fun but not necessarily what I need to know. And it's it's a really... Um, exciting uh, experience to see other people go through that same experience that I went through. Um, but as far as uh, training goes on like, the first day sort of thing, I'll let Bill jump in and get that one. Well, you know, our classes and courses, Jack, are, I mean, you're going to come in first thing and get a little sweaty and, uh, you know, we'll put you through, you know, uh, basic stand-up skills to see how your movement skills are. We'll do some striking as kicking. You know, it's not going to be a lot different than what a lot of other systems will put you through, except we're going to concentrate on just a few applications. Uh, you, you know, we may get you through some grappling to see if you know something about grappling, and then we'll start, as Adam said, breaking down some of the bad habits, and that'll be the first thing uh, that'll come past, because a lot of guys will come in and say, they've got training, but okay, it doesn't apply to the street. You know, and basically, if I'll go from a little bit of a street experience saying that's going to get you killed, you know. Like, you know, like, it's like the young Brazilian kid, don't do that. And I said, what? I'll show him a scar on my nose. That's why you don't want to do it. And, you know, stuff like this. So it's a, the first class is to get comfortable uh, with us, with you, and you with me. And we'll train out from there. Training in this is very, we, we try to make it a personal experience because no two people are alike. Uh, you know, I'm an old man compared to the young guys around here. And quite frankly, most of them can't keep up physically, which is kind of shocking. Uh, there's a lot of uh, guys coming with their cups full, as you know, and you know they're the ones that probably go on somewhere else. It's the people who come in with a passion that actually want to learn uh, basic street level training, then uh, they'll stick around. So it'll be a you know you're going to walk out with a few bruises, you're going to be a lot sweatier, and no ands ifs or buts about it. I don't know if that is what you're looking for, and it's sort of an answer. 
No, that's good. Um, what would you say is a, a timeline to reasonable proficiency where a person can at least look after themselves? Basically, if you train hard uh, and, you, and you can get some regularity in your training, in other words, you're not doing it once a week, you know, give us 25 hours and you, you dedicate yourself to that 25 hours and you can make it as, you know, ideally say if you come four hours a night for a 25-hour span, you walk out of here and at the end of that 25 hours, yeah, pretty well able to deal with the average threat level on the street, uh, you know, with, and come up with a, a fairly good chance of, uh, you know, taking care of the threat. You know, not to say you're not going to get a few punches in the head in it or worse, but you're going to come out of it. If it's a, a knife attack or the like we have up here, a lot of you're going to come out of it uh, as survivor and not a victim. What are some, you know, in your experience, you sound like you've had a lot of, of real-world experience, probably from law enforcement mostly, um, what are some common misconceptions that, that surround violence that can lead and really turn things into a w much worse situation than they had to be? Um, well, I think the biggest misconception is Hollywood. You know, people watch a movie and they think that's how it is. Uh, of course, sports fighting, they think uh, that's how it's going to be. I had a young fellow in who thinks a uh, uh, fencer, so he thinks he's a knife fighter. He's going on. Well, nobody dresses up in Renaissance attire to attack you in the street. So how that knife is presented and delivered on the street is totally different than any of the, uh, you know, the skills I've seen being taught to defend against. So, uh, you know, mindset is the first big one. You got to change your whole mindset when it comes to the street. You got to get your head out of the box. And if I could add to that, one of the things that I find interesting is just. Uh, I'll often videotape uh, sessions that we'll do or uh, courses that we're running and then I'll try and put together a sort of highlight reel and most of the techniques that are really effective and work really well are as we call the term video friendly so uh, but not marketing friendly because it doesn't look spectacular it doesn't sure. look like you can see in the movies it's very subtle and if you were caught on camera um, the person watching that surveillance camera might wonder what happened. Hmm. That actually sounds a lot like Sistema, um, <laughs> believe it or not, um, or real Sistema. Um, my, my experience has always been that the whole Hollywood thing you're talking about can be a real problem for people. And if I could say one thing for MMA and UFC and stuff like that, it's probably been the biggest thing to debunk Hollywood fighting that, 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 that's ever happened. I still think it leads to some misconceptions because it's just not real. There's rules, there's a referee, equally matched people have probably studied video of each other. That is not how an actual combat situation goes down on the street. But the whole thing, you guys know what I'm talking about. Remember old movies like Every Which Way But Loose and things like that with the, the guys trading blows and stuff like that? The one thing I have to say that these modern combat sports have done is kill that myth, at least. Yeah, I, I agree, because uh, I'm a fan of uh, a lot of action movies and always have been, and uh, there definitely has been a sort of a trend to more towards, I say towards, yeah, more realistic-looking sort of um, action sequence. Though I still think it's really far from the truth, and especially in uh, target acquisition, 
Like, there's isn't a show today where I see someone immediately trying to strike the groin. Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry about that. It's okay. And um, so I'll, I'll watch a television show, and, uh, you know, my favorite secret agent or whatever on television is in an altercation, and every time I see him throw a punch or throw a kick, I'm like, why isn't he going for a more vulnerable area of that person's body? And and I, I think the reality is is that if you if you say strike someone in the groin or strike someone in the throat, it's fights over pretty quickly. <coughs> so yeah, <laughs> uh, it doesn't make for quite the the television drama that uh, producers like. I think that the like I said the the biggest thing I think that they that the MMA type stuff has done is is shown number one that a lot of the whole trading blows things is just nonsense, and the other thing is that when two people that are actually really skilled. Uh, go against each other. And I, I think this is true even in a more violent situation in the street. It is generally the first person that makes the mistake that loses. I don't know how many times I've watched an MMA match or something like that. And, you know, you, you can't say either one of the guys is a terrible fighter. They wouldn't be, you know, on a pay-per-view fight if they didn't have any idea at all what they were doing at all. And, 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 and you know, they could probably take out the average guy pretty easily. And Either one of them could have won that match, but the one that just makes that one mistake and leaves that one opening ends up done in. And I think that is actually a realistic thing too, with a lot of combat, uh, you know, combat style violence things that that that, that single mistake can really cost you if you're dealing with someone that knows how to capitalize on it. Uh, well, yeah, and you're you're right to to certain degree, Jack. I mean, if you look at a, a guy on the street who's you know, makes gets his kicks out of victimizing people. Uh, they don't give the uh, victim a chance. I mean, you know, they just if the fight starts with a blow, it, it rains blows, as you know. Sure. It's the guy that you know. Most of our people who come in here, I mean, if you attack them, they have no doubt in their simple little civilian minds they're under a, in a fight. It's the one guy gets in their face and tries to bully them, you know, the talkers, and you know, and any cop that you know has had to deal with a guy like that, you know, you you. Decide well. How am I going to contain this guy? Do I stun him? Do I choke him out? Do I shoot the SOB or what do I do? So you got to go through this whole line of nonsense of uh, you know reactionary gap, keeping the base, uh, you know waiting for the tell so you know when to launch your level of force up and stuff like this. So that doubt sets in. You know, UFC match, you don't have that. An MMA match, you don't have it. Two guys get in the ring, they kind of shake hands and get it on. Mm -hmm. On the street, uh, there's that apprehension. And thugs uh, tend to take that away from you unless you can maintain your, uh, you know, control of yourself. So that personal control, staying rational, you know, versus emotional. And they're real good at kicking in your emotional side. So you keep making the wrong tactical decisions. So, uh, you know, most street thugs, like I said before, don't have a lot of training. A few may have attended the odd MA, MA school. I know we've got a few around here that are questionable in who in who they teach. But at the same time. That skill level is uh, not that great. Uh, if anybody is good at street fighting, it's generally because they've done a lot of street fights, and that's a different ball of wax. Even sports guys have a hard time with these guys because they are prepared to take it to that next level, where the sports guys not. So, as you said, you know, if, if they get it off first, it can be a nasty deal. So, you know, taking that away from the individual is something that we all have to learn to do. Uh, Hollywood definitely makes it look easy, but as you know, it's not. 
Uh, a, a guy who's dedicated himself to go into the ring is in superb physical condition. He's mentally prepared. He's, you know, he's got the skill sets to go for it. The average person who's training is just not getting to that level. I mean, uh, on two hours a week, you'd be hard pressed to, you know, yeah. like MMA schools up where we are. I mean, in, you know, the, in Canada, for example, less than 1% of our population do martial arts, and that's all martial arts. If you were to strip that down into uh, a more a viable fighting system, it's going to be a lot less. So by the time you wheedle that down to the street, there's not a lot of skill on that street that, that are MMA qualified fighters. They may emulate it to intimidate you, and that's the big problem there, isn't it? So yeah. seeing, having confidence in yourself and knowing what to do is what it's all about. And that's what training should give you, hopefully, if it's the right type of training. Well, I think there's a, a bunch of things in what you're saying there. Well, number one is that, first of all, the people that are really good, either sport fighters or combative fighters or what have you, in any system, to, to be really good and to be really well-trained had to be disciplined enough to, to go through the training. And generally, disciplined individuals don't go around starting shit. So they're generally not the ones getting into altercations. They're certainly not the ones provoking altercations. The big difference that can hurt a person at the same time they're trying to be reasonable in a, a street combat situation is that let's say you and I decide we are going to go into the ring and grapple in an MMA-style fight. There is no question, in my mind or your mind, that we're going to have that fight and under what circumstances we're going to have that fight in. We absolutely know there is going to be combat because we both agreed to it, shook hands as men, and decided we're going to do this. When you're dealing with someone in a real-world scenario, and you're talking about the person has like the big mouth and wants to, to, to do the monkey dance and shit like that, if you're a, if you're a, a sensible person, your, your hope is to avoid the fight. And there's this, there's this point of indecision where you don't really know what's going to happen, and that's very, very different from anything inside a ring or a cage. Absolutely. The, um, I always think of there was one instance where um, I was fairly green to this, and it's the threat of grievous bodily harm changes things entirely for you mentally. And when you don't have agreed-upon rules, you're not going into a cage, um, all of a sudden that threat of I could die <laughs> hits you pretty hard. Um, when, as I said, when I was pretty green, we had been uh, training in um, knife defenses. And we are using plastic knives for that. Mm -hmm. And I, I was feeling really good, really proficient. And then uh, Bill goes to demonstrate something on me, and he pulls out a real knife. Mm -hmm. And my response to that was the exact opposite of what we had just been training, because I fell into a, oh, my, oh my God, I could die. Uh, that's a real knife. It's a real blade. I could get cut. And it changed something for me mentally where all my training just sort of dropped off for me. And it's really important that you be able to tra train yourself to be able to handle situations like that where you uh, can think clearly and react um, intelligently despite the fact that there's that level of fear. Bill, do you have anything to add on that? That's that's pretty, pretty in informative right there. Yeah, well, you know, I'm a guy that, uh, you know, I've been shot on the job. I've been stabbed a few times. I'm missing a fingertip, part of my nose. So when it comes down to training people, you know, we want to cut through the nonsense. We can do it really fast with 
the training because, like I said to you earlier, guys will come in with the Hollywood image or they'll have come in with a sports image or they'll have someone's, like, example, you get Adam brought up the knife stuff. We'll have young lads come in here who've done a lot of knife training with whatever system it is. And they've got a lot of knife concepts, if you understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And they've never been in a real fight. They've never faced a real blade in training. Some of them had electric knives, or shock knives, or I think they're called. Uh, which I think are ridiculous. But anyway, uh, you know, because I've been cut and it doesn't feel like an electric shock. Uh, so, you know, all of a sudden, okay, you're a knife fighter. Okay, get your real knife. Well, okay, okay, I get my real knife and they run out the back door. They're not knife fighters. They're people who pretend they're knife fighters. And as you know, on the street, you're going to have to uh, stop pretending and, and real fast. And somewhere along the line, there has to be a reality check in the trainings. And cutting down that reality gap is the danger aspect of it. Uh, when you're teaching people, how far can you take it before uh, there's injury? You know, you try to fill in the gap with some psychological training. You know, stay rational, get rid of the emotional bad habits. Everyone's got bad mental bundles. Training gives people a lot of bad mental bundles and how to deal with uh, you know, training uh, attacks, edged weapons. Someone's going to draw a gun. What you know, the tells. What are you going to do? And these type of things. So the training that you know what Adam's talking about is a wake-up call because I'm sure he was probably acting a little cocky at the time when I pulled out my real knife. And you know, it was a time to smarten up, big guy, because he's a lot younger than me and a lot bigger. So uh, stuff like that. I mean, that's a military aspect of what we train. Uh, I, mean, I did it with some of your, la- your military folks down south on a seminar, and the base safety officer shut us down because they said the training was too realistic. So, you know, I mean, once you've been to war, it's pretty hard to explain to someone who's never been to war what war is. And, and uh, I've been to war on several occasions, and I've been in several street fights. And it's hard to explain to people what a street fight is unless you've never been in a street fight. If your life has never been on the line, um, it's very difficult to get that point across to somebody who thinks he knows everything. I got a major, uh, I won't tell you the unit, that I was teaching down south uh, in your neck of the woods, and he was against uh, armed combat training or combatives training only because he thought it was too sports-based in the U.S. military. And he says, what would you do if somebody attacked you? He said, I'd just shoot you. So he's sitting in a chair. I took out my folder from my pocket without warning, stuck it to his throat. Uh, he fell backwards out of the chair. And I said, well, what are you going to do now? I just slit your throat. And his OC started, his commanding officer started laughing and said, point well made, Mr. Wolf. And so on the major's behalf, he attended the five days of training. And, you know, he saw the difference between what his grandfather learned as a ranger than what they're teaching today. And uh, he learned what to do if someone surprisingly takes a knife out of their pocket and sticks it to your throat. You don't fall back out of the chair. You actually take care of it and stop worrying about dying. If you worry about dying, you die. And uh, training has to address that. I mean, if you've got, you know, if you take a major who's got uh, 12 to 14 years service, and you look at what he was able to do when I put that knife to his throat, put that towards a young soldier he's got serving in his command who's maybe got one or two years service, who has even less uh, close combat training, how's he going to react when he comes to face-to-face to the enemy? So those type of considerations have to be taken into play. And, uh, you know, to the kudos of the major, he completed the program and he saw the difference in the drills, the battle drills and the things that the old timers did compared to what is done now uh, and the reality thrown into it. Granted, a few more injuries than today, but if you're going to war, I'd rather spend a few days 
icing my bruises than possibly dying because I don't know something. But it's like I said to the, the commanding officer and to the troops when I trained them, what was the, what's the purpose of uh, unarmed combat training or combatives training, whatever you want to call it? And, of course, being young, gung-ho soldiers, they'll jump and say, to kill the enemy, sir. And I said, no, that's the incorrect answer. The correct answer is assertive confidence. Because you don't have assertive confidence in yourself. You're not going to close with and kill the enemy. So that's what the training was originally designed for. And it still should be done that way today, if that makes any sense. And, and you guys are up in Canada, so there's probably not a ton of our listeners that are going to beat feet up to where, to where you guys are to train with you guys. So where does somebody that's not in your area find training like this? Um, well, we, uh, we do have a few affiliates around the world. Unfortunately, we don't have any in the United States at the moment, uh, though we do come and do seminars for people. Um, as far as uh, finding a World War II combatant specialist, it can be pretty difficult. Uh, we also offer um, like multi-day training courses where people can come up and get a somewhat military-style experience and get an immersion in our courses and uh, sort of spend that uh, rather two days to 14 days of just immersing themselves in, in self-defense classes and, and learning the system. Are you guys interested in working with people that already have existing schools in, in adding that discipline to what they're teaching? Absolutely. Especially in the States since you don't have anybody, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah, we've been, I've been doing that, Jack, since I retired out of the police service, so that's well, almost 20 years now. So we've, we've come in and done a lot of seminars for different groups. The idea is, you know, as it goes now, it's thinking more like a history lesson than anything else, and then they see the reality of it. But also... You know, there's a lot of information that we put up on YouTube that people can access to see if it's for them. And uh, we have an online training academy that a lot of people take advantage of because we do have a lot of followers around the world. And they obviously, like you said, can't get to Vancouver uh, as often as they'd like or I can't get to where they are as often. So uh, they can watch, uh, download lessons, and it, it gives them something to uh, practice. It also uh, helps keep instructors who are teaching the system honest uh, with what they, they should be teaching. So there's various ways. It's all up to them to be as gung-ho as they can to get the education, I guess. Now, you've done some research to kind of advance the system, even though it has its roots. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, for me, uh, of course, my qualifications were military originally. We, you know, As you know, anybody in the military has to un undergo an instructor's course, in my day, it was 11 weeks. Uh, it was taught by uh, three veterans from the First Special Service Force, or the Black Devils, you know, those that famous Canadian American commando unit in World War II. Um, tough guys, hard course. Uh, I took over the program uh, later in my career as a senior instructor for the forces. But uh, where the modernization for us takes place is from the Canadian program was. Uh, in the 80s, as a police officer, we got involved in a research program that took two years of assaults on police officers. So basically we looked at every assault on a police officer that occurred in Canada for two years, and we had to come up with a police training system that was modernized that would stand up in a court of law, you know, and so you could address all those use of force issues. So we divided the program up into three initial programs, a beginning program when you come into the academy, uh, which is basically knock down, punch them out type stuff. Then we had to get into use of force, which became a second level, and then finally weapons training, which 
became, uh, you know, weapons, you know, pistols, shotguns, uh, knife, counter knife, all that type of stuff. So that modernization phase, I took and said, okay, well, we've done this for police. Um, what can we do for civilians? So, uh, you know, that kind of took on a life of its own. Guys wanted to learn that. So we, again, stripped that down to the civilian market because, again, you know, guys not going to the police academy 24-7 for 36 weeks. They're going to come in two days a week, give you an hour of class maybe if you're lucky. So how much can you actually teach them in that time frame? So the program's now been stripped to the face, you know, so it can actually make that uh, proper training commitment to people. So you get rid of a lot of fluff, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, I do. Um, I'd like to revisit a little bit before we wrap up on, on knife issues, because you keep bringing that word up, and it's something I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and misconceptions about, uh, both in people's minds in general and in a lot of the training that I see. I see a lot of knife training that's basically dueling one guy with a knife, another guy with a knife squaring off against each other, and I just have to tell you, I've never seen anything like that happen for real ever, uh, unless I have seen guys that are stupid and do whoever draws blood first wins type dumb shit. Um, but I mean in a real world fight where somebody's trying to kill somebody with a knife, I've never seen two guys squaring off with a knife and one guy flipping it around like a Filipino knife master or something. Um, I've actually seen one guy actually cut up in a real world conflict and this is how it happened. He was a bouncer at a bar, and it wasn't a real rough bar. It was actually a military bar where stuff like this usually didn't happen. People kept things in check. The guy was causing a scene, making a scene, and he just basically bear-hugged the guy from behind and started heading toward the door with him. The guy pulled out a razor knife and sliced up his hands and his arms in a matter of seconds. Uh, initially, he didn't even feel it. You talked about uh, you know earlier in the interview about how they use the electric knives, and it's not what getting cut with a knife feels like. In general, a lot of times when a knife getting cut doesn't hurt and stabbed sure as hell does. Um, so he wasn't even aware, and therefore there was greater damage, and, and several of us jumped in and managed to disarm this guy. Uh, one other person got cut a little bit, but the guy that actually grabbed the the guy making a scene uh, ended up with you know internal and external stitches. I think he had over 80 stitches total. He had damage to one of the tendons on, on, his, on his left arm that was permanent. And, and to me, that is the type of thing that actually happens with a knife in the real world. And I don't see a lot of training that addresses that type of thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right there, Jack. I mean, I've been a victim of that weapon myself a couple of times, and that's as a cop. So I, I, you know, I've been stabbed as a soldier in the battlefield, you know, AK-47 bayonets, not the smartest tool, but again... Uh, Domestic violence, you know, you get I got stabbed twice in the back. Uh, you know, you don't feel it unless it, the second time punctured my lung, so you kind of that's not a pleasant experience. Yeah. And you have to uh, come back from that because they don't stop coming. You know, uh, my last murder victim was a young lad that got in a bar fight, much like what you described. A uh, strong young lad grabbed a, a thug in a headlock, and the guy was a bar fighter. Uh, he was the kid was squeezing his head off like a pimple. And so he pulled out his old buck knife, not one of those fancy things that everybody buys today, and, and stabbed the guy inside the leg. And guess what? He severed. Femoral. Exactly. So the kid bled out. It was his 19th birthday, because up here you can drink at 19. And I had to go home and tell his parents that Johnny wasn't coming home. So, again, uh, you know, that's how it's used. And you're absolutely right. I get a lot of young lads coming in from many of those disciplines that you mentioned. And... Uh, their cup is full because they're, quite frankly, they're full of a lot of crap. And uh, 
it gets around here, we dispel it rather quickly. It kind of makes me the ogre, I guess, but I've seen too many victims. I've been a victim of it. I'm missing a fingertip because of it. And, uh, you know, uh, you know you, reality bites. And uh, if you don't bite in training, then you're sure shit going to get bit on the street. And, you know, that's what a lot of guys instructing don't do. And I, uh, frankly, a lot of them don't have the experience that you're talking about, even seeing it, let alone experiencing yeah. themselves. I mean, I remember years ago, was it the 80s, and uh, the Filipino stuff was the rage, and everybody was a knife-fighting expert, so I used to say, well, show me your scars. And, of course, they didn't have any, so if you don't have any scars, you, you have, you're an expert in concepts, not in fighting. Uh, the guys who trained me had the scars. They, were, they took out a lot of Germans. Harold, my initial instructor, killed a lot of Japanese with knives. So, uh, and I've been down that road myself as both a victim and as a soldier having to use it. So it isn't, uh, as we said, like the movies, it's not like the martial arts are portraying. It's not your Aikido class. Little old men can't beat up 15 of their own students. I know I sure shit can't. My people would be all over me like stink. So I think it's time, uh, you know, what we've tried to do, or I've tried to do with yours is dispel it. Um, you know, try to, this is, you know, our training here is probably more directed as you would to a civilian police academy style of training where we want to train police officers to be street savvy. It's the same we try to do here with our students is make them street savvy. Like people come on course, you're trying to get a, that point across them. This is, first we have to, this is how the thug's going to come at you. That's scenario based training. Then we have to create scenarios and test them under pressure to make sure they can function and to address exactly what you were just describing. So it takes a lot more effort, as you know, on the instructor's part, if they're diligent and they care about their people. And uh, our, my goal is not to lose anybody. I hate to go home to Mr. and Mrs. Smith and tell them Johnny's not coming home anymore because I've done that too many times. And, uh, you know, I did it once for a young gal who's a uh, Taekwondo black belt, <clears throat> lots of trophies. She went through the park late at night. As you know, bad mistake. Bad guy came up behind and slipped a choke on her. She started trying to lay elbow strikes into him. He choked her out, killed her. Yeah. So I went home and told Dad and Mom. They took me into the bedroom where all the trophies were, and Dad said, how come, why? And I said, how do you explain that to a parent who's spent lots of money teaching their kids Taekwondo and to have them killed by a rapist? See, that's more a situational and uh, situational awareness type of uh, of scenario, and I think that's what a lot of people that get kind of puffed up is the, what I call it by their training don't comprehend that you can be the most badass fighter in the world in the ring, out of the ring, on the street, in a bar, and if you don't think I'm a threat, and I hit you in the kidneys with a baseball bat, it's game over at that point. You're on the ground, and and I've got a clear advantage. Um, you may be able to recover from that, but odds are if the second blow is as hard as the first to the head, you don't. And there are certain parts of training that I think get left out, conflict avoidance, conflict de-escalation, and, and you know, Frank Sharp's wise words, don't do stupid things in stupid places with stupid people. And I think that's left out of a lot of training as well. Cops, you can't, when you're training with police officers, they're going to be in these situations because... Frankly, they're paid to be. Civilians need some level of guidance in this is how you handle if it happens, but yet this is how the hell you prevent it from happening in the first place because every time something goes down, you could end up on the wrong end of it. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, the biggest problem we have is, you know, people uh, react to how their, their, their last incident occurs. And, if you know, if you're, there's an old saying, uh, you're only as good as your last fight. And if your last fight you were... Victorious, you probably figure that's how you're going to do it again. 
Uh, you know, we talk around here about bad memory bundles, like negative, uh, you know, emotional versus rational applications. And what you're basically talking about is training people to start thinking rationally, tactically, and for, of course, for civilians and for policemen, they don't have a concept of what tactics are, because when do you learn tactics? You don't, unless you're in the military. So we have to educate them. This is first, what's the definition of tactics? And start teaching them, okay, this is the street, this is the tactics to go with it. Now, in order for you to do that, you can't let your emotions kick in. Your last memory bundle, which is probably fear-based, is going to kick in. So we have to educate that out. So you have to strip that bad negative bundle and replace it with a positive tactical bundle. It takes time. It's, you know, it's a stripping effect. A lot of people don't like it. One of the ones they don't want to give up is anger because everyone thinks, oh, anger is going to make me tougher. Mm. Anger just makes you stupid. And uh, so stripping that away and getting rid of the emotional content, as our friend Bruce Lee once said, is very important. But, uh, you know, that, that takes time. And like when we do our prolonged programs here, people live in our barracks. So they basically get sequestered. They can't run home to mummy or to the wife and complain about it. They actually have to start uh, looking at themselves as not, not just the physical body, but the mental and spiritual body. You know, that indomitable fighting spirit the military talks about. You try to give that to people with a, a big dose of common sense. And I think you kind of hit the head there. A lot of people just don't have common sense when it comes to violence. You know, the there is a balance, isn't there, between enough aggression to execute and not allowing anger to be your guide. What I've noticed with the guys that, that I've, I've seen uh, grappling with each other and that I've worked with, uh, and again, I, I think they're, they're not quite doing what you are. Modern Army uh, combatives, I think, is still not come all the way back circle to the type of thing you're teaching. But on the grappling, you can watch guys that are good, and it's a very Zen Buddhist-like mentality that they're in when they're grappling with each other. And the new guy that maybe has some skills that comes in and gets frustrated or angry, angry ends up on the wrong end of it almost every time because it leads to mistakes. It's just what I've observed. Yeah, that's true. But at the same time, I've worked with your young lads down in the military. and uh, One of the reasons they bring me in is because they're looking at modifying modern combatics. Uh, there's about 200, rec- 200 recommendations to make it, modify it. And if they do modify it, it'll be closer to World War II combatics once again, because I'll come along and you'll have two guys ground fighting in their Zen state, and I'll hand one a knife and say, okay, start using that, and the other guy has no idea how to contain that weapon. And in the ground, as you know, a knife comes out real quick as the equalizer. Like, mm-hmm. For example, yeah. years ago, I was working with the Chinese Special Forces back as an exchange program, and you know, I, you expect to see them all doing their Kung Fu, and of course, they're talking to their CO, well, they don't really, they do Kung Fu, but more of a military version, if you want to call it that. But I, and I says, well, how come it's not so pretty looking? He says, well, we learned in Korea when you go up against the six foot seven Texan, you can't out Kung Fu him, but we can sure out knife Fu him. So, <laughs> yeah. so they learned that real quick. You can equalize out that size difference by just putting a little cheap dollar ninety five melon knife in somebody's hand and gut them. And well, <laughs> I've I've read a lot that victims far more fear a knife than a gun. And and I have a theory that I think is to why that I don't even think maybe the victims are consciously aware of it, but I think that it is just the fact that the guy with the knife is more likely to use it. It doesn't make any noise. And it, it, he's more likely to be able to execute and get away with the crime than if he's popping off shots. And I think that there's there's a primal instinctive fear of knives in human beings because of things like that. 
Yeah, that's true. We just had uh, a guy go crazy up here and stab five people, and um, unfortunately, five people didn't even know they were dead. You know, that's how silent and deadly it is. And the guy had no training in a knife. That's another misconception that the martial arts have put out there. Everybody uses a knife on the streets, trained to use a knife. And almost every guy I ever arrested had no no experience with a knife, no martial arts training whatsoever. You know, it's what they say in the old movie Zorro, do you know how to use it? Yeah, the pointy end goes in the guy, basically. It's as yeah. simple as it gets. So, yeah, that psychological aspect, you know, everyone's afraid of getting cut. And usually when people, if they do produce it and they start parading the knife, they make a big show of it, which is scary for a lot of people. That's like why in World War II uh, they taught knife training at the end of their unarmed combat phase because if they went to weapons right away and the guy became disarmed, well, his confidence was in the weapon. So ah. we want guys to be confident without the weapon. Like I always tell my young lads, if you're a good boxer and you got accuracy, speed, and force with your hands, imagine I'd give you a knife now and tell you to do the same thing with that knife in your hand, how accurate and fast that knife's going to be. And that's basically knife fighting in a nutshell, isn't it? It is, and I think that there's a one more danger that I think we'd be remiss if we don't talk about here at the end with people that carry knives for defense. Um, it is true what I just said about victims having a greater fear that's been kind of proven in a lot of research studies. I'm sure you've read some of them. But the other thing is that people often think that knives can be used as an intimidating factor for conflict avoidance. And what I, I know you guys can't carry there, but we can carry here. And if a person sees that as an option and is in some sort of conflict that could be de-escalated and draws a knife, at that point, they have justified the use of lethal force by the other party. And to me, that whole attitude of, I have this knife, is a good way to get your ass killed if you're not careful. And I see a, a lot of YouTube videos with knife reviews and guys talking to the, kind of the badass attitude like this. And I think it's just a delusion that could get somebody killed and probably has gotten people killed. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's a lot of misnomers about it, you know, various... You know, up, up here, one in five people carry a knife, basically, and they're carrying it for protection. Uh, you know, everyone thinks Canada's a nice, cozy little country, and it is. But if you also look at our stats, it, your chance of getting shot by a handgun in Canada is greater than the United States. And that's a fact, which our government doesn't like to tell anybody. And we have, the, you know, probably one of the most stringent gun controls on the planet, because the guy shooting you is a criminal. He don't give a crap about that, and he didn't buy it over the counter. So... You know, and the same goes for knives. I mean, uh, you know, uh, you don't need your $300 folder to stab somebody. You can be sitting in a restaurant and pick up a knife and bury it in them just as easy as anything else. I had, uh, one of my victims was a gal that got two old ladies in their 60s drunk, got in a fight over another gentleman in his 70s, and one of them takes a beer glass, breaks it, and sticks it in another woman's face, causes uh, severe lacerations, which require 250-plus stitches to close the wound, Nobody thinks that beer glass is an edged weapon that's used in a heartbeat. So, you know, and the big problem if you go, you know, training is a lot of the young lads come in here. I think maybe IQ has just something to do with it. And, you know, knife on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being death, knife is 10. And But, you know, maybe you have the answer. Why do people train people to take a knife away using a level 5 force when they should be at 10 plus? You know, this type of thing. So we first off teach people the wrong force options. You know, a guy's coming at you with a knife, well, he's going to kill you with that weapon, so you better be prepared to kill him or you're not going home. And if he happens to drop it in the fray, well, then you reprioritize to, uh, you know, a different level of force options, but at the same time, you're ramped up. So how do you do that, right? 
you know, pick up a chair and hit him with the chair rather than trying to out Aikido him, stuff like that. We don't take, you know, people don't teach awareness in that environment. Okay, what are your tools that you can use that besides your body to get cut or, you know, move, scoot, and shoot, someone's shooting at you. But, uh, you know, we, we're, we're still teaching self-defense, and even in the military, for example, and I hate picking on you guys down there, but you're teaching your soldiers a sports fight. And that's not what I want my lads to go to Afghanistan with. Now we're not in Afghanistan anymore, we're out. But when I trained our lads to go over, I didn't train them to sports fight anybody. And we got in a lot of crap from higher because we were teaching them how to knife fight. Because, you know, it's a war. And uh, that's what you're supposed to be doing. And the street can be a war really quick. So how do you, you know, how do you break down this stereotypical nonsense that so many people are putting out there? No, I, I, I completely agree with you. I actually, one of my biggest um, problems with the U.S. military, U.S. Army in particular, is the removal of bayonet training from basic. Um, I never had a course that I went through, and I'm talking about like an obstacle course, where I was more completely dead at the end of it than the bayonet course, and I was never put more in touch with the reality that I might have to kill somebody than I was during bayonet training. Yeah. And the fact that that's been removed to me is is almost criminal. And the, the justification was, well, you know, it's not really something that's used in modern combat anymore. We we don't do bayonet charges anymore. And and, and my thought was that was never the point. Yeah. That was never really the point of bayonet training. It was to get in touch with the need to, as you keep saying, ramp up to the point where you comprehend what you have to do. And, and there was nothing in my basic that did that the way the bayonet did. Yeah, well, I can tell you personally that uh, I've taught you know my, our Army, and I, I've had young guys on the course that actually did use their bayonets on their rifle. Our new rifle, which they've taken the lug off it, so you can't put a bayonet because we got we got to you know we scoped them up now. I've taught, I did a course for the British Army. I had uh, instructors from various units. They don't have an unarmed combat training program anymore in the British Army, but I had guys from different regiments of the British Infantry, two of the regiment, different soldiers, all had done bayonet charges. One unit did it in Iraq. They were guarding a bridge. They ran out of ammo. OC said fix bayonets, and they actually charged fix bayonets. And another battalion company actually did a bayonet charge in Afghanistan. And none of them had been taught how to use the bayonet on the end of a rifle. And, of course, the shorter rifle actually makes for a great little tool to stick that enemy with the bayonet. But Marine Corps still do it. Maybe they're still doing bayonet training. Uh, and that. But, it, you know, that's the problem. Uh, when we don't look at the threat anymore, we start, you know... Uh, and I, I hate to say it, but when you, we start looking at the UFC as the ultimate fight and we start buying that, you know, those soldiers right now in Iraq and, and Afghanistan, they're in the ultimate fight. And that's what your training is supposed to address, that threat. And unfortunately, it hasn't done it. But the, as I'm told, the changes are coming to that program that you don't like so much, Jack. There are actually 233 recommendations were made to modernize modern armed combatics. If that occurs, I'll be greatly surprised because, as you know, a lot of guys have built a career around that system and mm -hmm. guarding it dearly. I don't think that system has to go away for the additional training to be provided. I think that the basic grappling that our military personnel are doing right now is actually 
great conditioning physically, and I think it's great mental conditioning in some ways, but I think it's lacking in that that next level that when you're you've got your rifle, you're doing your thing, you think you're covered by your buddy, you're doing an entry, and all of a sudden some guy comes from the darkness and grabs you by the throat with a knife to your throat, I think it doesn't have what's necessary to deal with that component. So I don't think it has to go away, but I think we're sorely lacking in the type of things you're talking about. And again, seeing the Army take the bayonet away was just... I, I don't even comprehend the mentality that does that if the people that made decisions, which you would think they were because they're upper brass, had been through the training themselves, you would think they would comprehend the mental switch that occurs during it. But I don't know. I guess everybody wants to make nice and not look like we're there to kill. But the soldier's job is to kill, at least at certain points in time. And I think we've lost some of that willingness to accept that. Yeah, that's true. But again, uh, they're addressing those issues that you brought up. I know. Uh, Hope so. Because I I get uh, correspondence, and uh, part of the reason why they guys approach me is because they want to know what the old system used to look like. Because uh, the original World War II combatives was it's still in play in the Canadian military in our training system, and uh, you know they want to know what it looked like. And the problem we had. You know, I did in the 70s and 80s teaching it is uh, Bruce Lee got in the way and a whole lot of other stuff and it, it became uh, to a point where it got so watered down you know that nobody really remembered how it was taught I mean it had a lot of tricks you know if you look at any of the books on World War II combatives they're pretty you know thin books if you look yep. at the videos footage you know Fairburn and some of the old guys showing it they're doing their magic couple hits and people think that's all that Fairburn knew. Well, the man was a martial arts genius, so he knew a lot more than that. So when they asked me, well, how did he actually teach it? Well, this is how we used to teach it. And uh, that shocks and intimidates him because it's like you say, it's, it is war fighting. And, uh, you know, and what's good about the young lads you got in your military, the leaders, they're, they're, they're sponges. They want to know this stuff. And it's going to... You know, it'll change for the better. Uh, you know, it, it's going to be a lot more violent. It's going to have to be because what they're, you know, you, we're all fighting a three-tier war now, which is not like World War II. World War II, you went in to kill. When I was a young lad, our job was to kill Russians and uh, or the Soviets, I guess I should rephrase that. And uh, there was, you know, that was what it was about. Uh, today, you're fighting a three-tier war. I've been on a lot of UN deployments where use of force is a big, big drama. And uh, so you can't just, you know, you have, much like a policeman today, you know, you've got to justify your use of force. And a lot of unarmed combat programs have mulled to be more passive in that regard, rather than, as you know, I told you earlier, we train at the killing level and build down. And that's done through discipline uh, in the military, not so much civilians, but definitely in the military, because that's what they have to start with. And, you know, that takes a lot of extra effort. Uh, and, you know, if you look at your the average American soldier, and it's true for most militaries, get about 1.5 hours of modern army combatics training per month. That's hardly going to create any efficiency. You know, you can only clean your rifle so many times, repack your kit so many times, and you could be doing something more constructive. And, you know, it's like everything else. How much time do you give to something to be good at it? You know, you, we don't teach handgun shooting or rifle shooting 
where it's not how to kill, right? So why are we doing it the other way around when we're sending young men to war? And of course, you can tell that's my pet peeve of the day. Yeah, <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> no, um, seriously, guys, this has been great. Could we just let folks know um, what's available on your website and your YouTube channel and how they can find it? Yeah, uh, we're, you can come to wolfscombatives.com. Um, there we, uh, you can link onto our online training um, modules and whatnot. Uh, we also offer um, uh, sort of live-in courses where you can come up to Vancouver, uh, stay with us, and learn World War II combatives with us. Very cool. Well, Bill, Adam, I appreciate you guys being with us, and uh, I'll tell everybody uh, at the end here that we actually had to do this in a two-parter because yesterday we had internet trouble. So, uh, kind of a double thank you got to you know to you guys to making time available two days in a row to uh, get this knocked out. Yeah, no problem. Um, we, if it's okay with you, we'd like to offer a discount to your listeners as well. Uh, okay. Uh, we're thinking like 10% off for any of the listeners that are listening today. Just use the uh, coupon code uh, SURVIVAL. And um, we uh, want to maybe talk to you about uh, doing uh, a bigger discount for your MSB members. Okay, so we'll run the uh, survival discount as of today on the air, and you guys can set whatever time limit you want on pe- you know, for people to use that. Uh, or you can leave it open-ended. It's up to you. And we'll... we'll uh, We'll correspond by email, and I'll give you all the information about the MSB, and I'd, I'd love to have you guys be part of it. That's, that's great. Thank you. And thanks, Jack. We appreciate all the time and effort on your part. All right. Well, guys, I appreciate it. And today, this has been Jack Spearco. Today, along with Bill Wolf and Adam Perrins, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.